Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to this first ever chat episode of The Other Half. Those of you who know me from my Queens of England podcast days may remember that I did a few of these on the old show, and I'm delighted to be bringing them back once again. Today, I will be talking to Ellen Epstein, a journalist and now author who has a new book out called Tsarina, a historical fiction book about the life of a Baltic peasant girl who rose to become the wife of the Russian Tsar, and eventually the first female ruler in Russian history. I would like to thank Bloomsbury Publishing, mild employers, for both the opportunity to chat with Ellen and for providing me with an advanced proof of the book to read. You can find links to pre-order the book in the show notes, but first, let's run the title music, and after that, I will be talking to Ellen. Welcome to the podcast, Ellen. Uh, how's it been like over where you in, in, in pandemic land? Oh, it's lovely. I mean, I have to say, it, it's, it's, I shouldn't say it. And I realise that this is so much harder for, for some people than it is for others. But for a writer, actually being in self-isolation is very much business as usual. I mean, I always work from home. I do have to homeschool my kids and somehow every arts and craft lessons ends in cookie, chocolate cookie chip baking. <laughs> so I put on weight. Um, but I realize how horrific this is for millions and millions of people. And I basically, it's, it's awful now, but I also fear what comes afterwards. So fingers crossed for our return to normality as some countries, I mean, Germany is just opening up again. So let's watch them and, and see what happens and hope that we can pull it off as well. Yes, of course. So we're here to talk about Zarina. This is your, I believe, your first book. Yes. So for the benefit of the listeners, uh, what's, what's it all about? So Zarina is my debut novel. And so here's the elevator pitch with which I got my agent and then later my publisher too, because that's always a big question. How do you, how do you get published? So Zarina is basically from serf to empress and from backward nation to superpower. 
And Tsarina tells for the first time ever the incredible story of the Russian Empress Catherine I. She was born as Martha, the illegitimate and illiterate daughter of a Baltic serf, and um, went on to capture the heart of one of the most powerful men in Russian history ever, Peter the Great. And at his death, she might seize his throne and become the first ever woman to rule Russia. And that's exactly where my novel kicks in. That's the first page. Peter the Great has died without designating an heir for his empire, which in those days was the largest and wealthiest realm on earth. So Serena is really the most extraordinary rags to rich tale. It's a story of sex, power, ruthlessness. Martha experiences every humiliation and almost death until destiny sends her into the arms of Peter the Great. She drinks with him, she makes him laugh and cry, follows him in battle, gives him a dozen children, only to see most of them die. She fights for him, loves him, hates him, endures his mistresses, saves him, betrays him, and witnesses many a brutal execution that is supposed to scare her witless. But Marta, or Catherine as I call her now, Catherine is made of sterner stuff and rises from dirt to the most dizzying heights of um, of power. And Farina is also the story of the birth of modern Russia, of a rising empire and turmoil and change, of the madness of war, the reckless brutality of monarchy set against the backdrop of the wild and passionate world of 18th century Russia, where really nothing is as abundant and uh, worthless as human life. Yeah, because I've... Um... In, in my podcast, I've sort of done the other end of this. So um, I've just done a very long series on the fall of the Romanovs, studying, uh, looking at uh, Empress Alexandra and, and her sister Ella, who was married to uh, one of um, Nicholas II's uncles. And so it's been interesting to go back right to the very beginning of, of Romanov rule and of the sort of the birth of, of a westernized Russia, but a Russia that still has this or even more so in your book, but even in the sort of early 20th century, still has this great tension between the pull of Western influence, Eastern influence, between Moscow and St. Petersburg. So what made you write a book about Catherine I? So as, as you mentioned, um, first of all, I have to say Catherine I is not Catherine the Great, but she set the scene for everything that was to follow politically in Russia thereafter, um, especially a century of unprecedented female reign in Russia. So the fascinating story of Catherine I of Russia had never left me ever since I first um, discovered her or read about her when aged 13. I mean, I'm still of a, of, um, a generation screenless, so <laughs> we had plenty of books to read. And in my parents' library, I had come across a book called Germans and Russians by an author called Leo Sievers. And he charts the very varied uh, millennial history of these two people. And despite terrible tragedies and two horrendous wars, there is this fascination for each other. So two people that can toil and function to the most terrible ends, but who are equally endowed with an incredible soulfulness and depth and an innate understanding of beauty and life, of tragedy and fate. And the most beautiful thoughts, music, dance, writing, as well as the most shocking totalitarian regimes are either German or Russian, if you think about it. So one chapter in this book was devoted to Catherine I, because she was born a German Baltic serf and then became a prisoner of war in the Great Northern War between Sweden and Russia. And when I had matured enough to really start writing, and when I dared saying, yes, I want to be an author, 
I realized that amazingly enough, there was nothing about her. No book, no thesis, no biography, no novel, really, no nothing. Yeah, I mean, I find it amazing that no one has written about her, but I I, uh, actually studied Peter the Great when I was at school. We never really looked at the the women in his life. You you study the Great Northern War, you study um, the Westernization, and then you look a bit about uh, about the succession right at the end. It was kind of an afterthought, and I think that's part of the unfortunate sort of male-centric way that we view history, unless they're actually a a monarch, or even in this case that she was a monarch, Catherine, you just ignore her. So um, we talk about, you've talked about the fact that no one's written a book about this, which I, I, I too find astonishing. Why do you think it hasn't been? Well, that is really the fact that baffles most people about Serena when, when I give them my elevator pitch, this from serf to empress, from backward nation to superpower. That is the one and only book, the first novel ever to tell this extraordinary tale. And to me, she's really my Tutankhamun. She was always there. Uh, but the task before and after shed so much light and made so much noise, literally, um, that she lay forgotten until now. And I hope that nobody who has read or will read Serena will ever forget her again. Um, I, I hope that the book is like holding a beating heart, a pulsating heart in your hands. And everybody knows the passionate and tragic twists and turns uh, that history took with the Romanovs, as you say, James. And of course, both Peter the Great and Catherine the Great have been extensively covered by both literature and film or TV. We had uh, Massey's, Robert Massey's great works and the recent adaptation of the later life of Catherine the Great with her fabulous um, Helen Mirren uh, playing her. So my Catherine might actually give a fabulous story, an unknown human and feminine twist, which is, of course, very the flavor of the day, uh, as everything is about female empowerment, emancipation, uh, a woman's view is a bit um, like Hilary Mantel's telling once more, the story of Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn, which we all know, but we never tire of. And she makes it completely fresh and anew, of course, by finding Cromwell's point of view. Cromwell, too, is one of uh, the fascinating people in history that was actually almost always there, but hasn't been explored. So... Like Hilary Mantel, who adores Cromwell, I'm vaguely obsessed with my Catherine. I think so much comes together in her life. She was really at the right place in the right time. And um, La Stampa, uh, the Italian newspaper, because the book came out in Italy earlier and was the Christmas number one in Bella Italia. So La Stampa wrote, um, her stunning story has the magnificent backdrop of sequences at court, intrigues of the first order, jealousies between ladies, bloody battles, the building of St. Petersburg, the making of a superpower, blending all in an epic cloaked in ice and snow. So I think I've been simply incredibly lucky to come across here, her, um, any writer dreams of such an unspoiled, unexploited character. And if any artist has a central theme to his creation, she's mine. And I think I was destined to find out about her. And I was destined to write this book, James. Well, it's always wonderful to find your, uh, to find to find the topic that really interests you. I think we all hope to sort of have that and to own it and to have that great opportunity. Obviously, this this book is uh, a historical fiction, so it's both historical and, of course, fiction. 
Um, how much did you have to change to sort of make the whole story tie together? I mean, you have a huge amount of history in there. It covers an entire person's life, the birth of a, of a whole new dynasty and a whole new nation, really. So how much did you have to change to mould to, to make this a sort of a book that really works? It was really an all-encompassing task. You are absolutely right. And um, if somebody asked, somebody said, asked me, is Serena fantasy? And I said, no, it's not. It reads like fantasy, but if anything, I've watered it down. So I went on reading about Russia ever since discovering Catherine I in Leo Siva's German and Russian's book. Um, very diverse oeuvres ranging from Tolstoy, Pushkin, Gogol, Dostoevsky, to sociological studies like the deeply disturbing and very important book, The Unwomanly Face of War, uh, by Svetlana Alexeyevich to Young Stalin by Simon Siebert Montefiore. I've watched Russian movies such as Battleship Potemkin and the experimental um, Russian arc. About Romanovs, I know a lot, of course, through their German family connections, but incidentally, I find, as you say, the earlier Tsars of Rurik or Petrine descendants much more interesting and much more Russian. So an ancestor of my husband is actually Githa, the daughter of Harold II, who died in Hastings, and who went on to marry the Rus prince um, Vladimir in Kiev. So I don't want to write the umpteenth book about either Catherine the Great or the last Tsars. I want to surprise and tell something new. And, and Russia, as you say, is really a terrific source for that. So even though my Russian is patchy at best, there are original and, of course, secondary sources galore. And I think I, I read for a year before I even started writing. So I read early travel descriptions, such as the German merchant Adam Oliarios visiting from Mikhail Romanov. I read letters of foreigners at the Russian court such as Mrs. Rondeau, of course, Robert Massey's and Henri Troyas' um, biographies about Peter the Great. And last but not least, which was really my Bible during writing, Serena, uh, Professor Lindsay Hughes of the London School of Slavonic Studies, her fabulous tomb, uh, Russia in the time of Peter the Great. So this was really my, my thread of Ariadne as I slid deeper and deeper into this strange, shocking, sensuous world that is the Russian history and the Russian soul, where really seemingly insurmountable contrasts are casually combined and lived out without any qualms. And this absoluteness is fascinating. So, as I say, in the end, I read for almost a year before writing my first word, immersing myself completely into this woman's life and rise in the Russian Baroque. And I even read Russian myths and fairy tales which disclosed so much about the mindset and the imaginary of the people. It's an invaluable help. And I'm curious about Baba Yaga's house, which turns on three legs, spinning with the sun, and, and laugh at certain turns of phrases, except like the storyteller is always rewarded at the end, eating pots of honey, which is very sweet. And perhaps that is why people... Um, like the book so much, or those who've read it, I hope that everybody will like it. It's stuffed to the brim with soul, detail and truth and an attempted answer to the question, so what was her life really like? Because in the beginning, of course, I was mesmerized by this 2D elevator pitch of her life. But slowly, as these bare bones got fleshed out, there was a myriad of aspects, aspects to consider making the story realistic. So no half measures are possible. So I completely fell for Catherine the first. And uh, the Russians um, are a communal people. The word for happiness, shastya, means being part 
of something bigger. And this inspired her. She always made the best of a given situation. And even though her mind was not academically trained, she acts with courage, care and cunning. She counts on people and rewards family, friendship, loyalty. She's kind, fun and generous, yet no one takes away what is hers. And whatever fate throws at her, she deals with it. Um, so that's a lesson for all of us. And that's what I learned through my research. And to finish the original version, I wrote for one and a half years straight next to presenting Breakfast TV on, on Bloomberg TV at the time. And then the editing started, which is really a very schizophrenic work with more research. You know the manuscript by heart, yet you have to take a step back again and again and see it with completely fresh eyes. And once that was done, oh God, James, I was so exhausted. I was ill for three months, <laughs> suffering from anxiety and depression. And today I, I manage my resources better. So yes, research I did. <laughs> Where I think historical fiction really can be really useful for sort of lovers of history, I think, is the studies of ordinary lives, because there's so such little information that you can add in a in a factual way to what a life the life of a, of a peasant is in in Germany in in sort of the Baltic areas, what it was to be a merchant, what it was to be an ordinary soldier, and with sort of historical fiction, you can bring things together and you can really give this really rich uh, examination of what life is like for, for ordinary people. And I, I really enjoyed in these sort of the early chapters, the story of Marta, how she moved from very humble beginning to moving into this horrible man's house to moving into a, you know, this lovely pastor man's house and, and then how she sort of went from there the world of Peter the Great. And I, as I say, I think that's really where historical fiction is really wonderful, is, is telling those stories in a way that you can't, you just can't in a factual way, because you, there's so much you, you can't say for sure, or you can't say for sure for one person, you can bring these things together. Um, so moving to a similar sort of question, how much of this book is historical fact and how much of it is, is fiction? You're, you're absolutely right, James, in saying that this, is, um, that this is what makes historic fiction so special, looking at a normal person. And for instance, I think perhaps Downton Abbey was so successful because the downstairs was almost more fascinating than the upstairs. And uh, even if you think about the TV series Rome, which was on, God, I think a good decade ago, but was kind of kicked off that new trend for very interesting TV. There too, we had the common Roman soldiers who made things actually more interesting than the family life of the Julians. So even if you have a very strict framework of dates, events and details of Marta's or Catherine's world, um, they, of course, never waver and are a constraint. There's also a lot of liberty. And Catherine I, Martha, emerges really from the mist of time when she enters service in that household of the Protestant priests, the Glucks, in Marienburg. So for everything before, I was free to construct um, my character and the general research was of invaluable help because every detail still had to be right from the clothes she wore to the food she ate, the beliefs she held, and how houses, roads, villages, carts, etc. looked. So um, also to imagine the first part of her life, I followed the advice of a best-selling French author, Benoit Groot, whose assistant I had been at university, and she um, told me to wish your heroine well, we first wish to see her or him think incredibly low. 
And I think that's that's what I did with Martha. She really, Martha, she really suffers every humiliation possible. And you might, the first 150 pages, you ask, how on earth is she ever going to meet the Tsar? So yeah, I suppose you, you go on reading. And once her life story entered the certified Petrine era, of course, her hysterical whereabouts were recorded meticulously. So the challenge was more not to have Peter the Great hijack the book because he really looms invariably large. Afterwards, the publisher's edits were rigorous, checking up on every detail from the timeline to locations, what happened in which church, in which town, in which city, and anecdotes given for the merest events. So I took very few liberties, such as merging a couple of characters, otherwise the tableau was really becoming unmanageably large, and changing some first names, which were too similar for distinction. For example, almost all women um, were called Anna. And in the end, in the book, only Catherine's daughter herself was allowed um, to keep that her real name. You've um, obviously early, earlier in, in some of your answers, you've talked about some of the other Russian uh, rulers, uh, particularly Catherine the Great. Something I find very interesting about Russia is that it's had quite a number of uh, female rulers, more than most. It's one of these annoying things. It's quite difficult to count how many Russian empresses or emperors there have been because there are joint emperors, some whose rule was contested, but they've been around about a third of all the Russian emperors from sort of Peter the Great to Nicholas II were women. Why do you think that is? Yeah, you're right. Russia is actually up there with England, who had eight female rulers, if you count uh, Empress Matilda and Lady Jane Grey. Um, so true, Catherine the Great, uh, Catherine the First was the first woman to ever rule Russia, the first crowned empress, really set the scene for an unprecedented century of female rule in Russia, which was then the world's largest, richest realm, really a behemoth, just getting his act together internationally. Uh, she was then followed by the Empress Anna, who was um, her husband's niece, Elizabeth, who was her daughter, and finally Catherine the Great, who came to Russia as a German princess and who actually was rebaptized in the Orthodox faith, uh, faith um, to honor my Catherine. So her real name was Sophia, and then when she converted to the Russian church, she was baptized Catherine to honor Catherine I. Um, I actually believe a reason for this very female century were genetic. The Romanov women were made of much sterner stuff than the men. Already Peter the Great's father had 15 children, but only one son, Peter himself, was healthy enough to survive into adulthood, and two of Peter's half-brothers were actually heavily handicapped. Peter himself had three sons with his first wife, um, Evdokia, and two of which were stillborn, even though he was young and healthy and really in the prime of his life. He had a dozen or more so children with Catherine, but had contracted the syphilis. So a good half a dozen of his sons died as infants or toddlers, being too puny and too weak to survive. And even if you look at what happened to the last certified male Romanov, as I call him, uh, that would be Peter the Great's grandson, Charles Peter of Holstein, who was brought to Russia by his aunt Elizabeth, the Empress Elizabeth, as a husband to the future Catherine the Great. So it's a bit complicated here. But by the time he arrived, age 30, he was already degenerate and had lost all confidence and common sense had been whipped out of him by brutal tutors. So the son that his wife bore him, the future Emperor Paul, is certain to have been fathered by a Count Saltikov. 
So actually all the male Romanovs who followed Catherine the Great up to the last emperor, Nicholas II, weren't Romanovs at all. So I believe those reasons were genetic. One of the sort of themes in this um, book is the sort of the maltreatment of women by men. I mean, that's you could just copy paste that statement to any period of history, really. But it really struck me when reading the book, see how nearly every single female character in the book is 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 maltreated, is 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 attacked, is uh, put down. Particularly, I was just thinking of of some of the other the maids that uh, Marta worked with other mistresses of Peter the Great. Um, and the one that really struck me was uh, Peter the Great's son's uh, wife, a German princess, who was horribly mistreated by, by, the, by the Tsarevich. Why do you think Catherine managed to survive this and emerge on top where almost every other female character in the book failed? Yes, you're right. Both researching and writing Serena made me think a lot about women and the lives they had uh, really as the donkeys of mankind, you know, multitasking and loading incredibly heavy stuff on, on their delicate backs. So people often speak of the good old days, thinking of social cohesion and man's limited horizons, which made certainly for a simpler life. But for women, those were mostly worse and frankly, terrible days. Um, if you think about it, no education other than household chores, early marriage to a man who suited your parents, probably annual childbirth, which was a gamble of life and death. Um, each time, seeing half of your children die due to the harsh climate and lack of health care, no privacy, privacy, no me time, no dreams, your frustrated husband turning violent with drink, as you say. And I think life was only marginally better for women of high standing. And what actually brought the first change, James, was the Petrine laws of inheritance. As always, or as very often, war is terrible, but war is also a harbinger of progress and modernity. So if all men are out in the field, the women have to run the trade and the shops. If all sons fall in battle, an unmarried eldest daughter must be allowed to inherit, whilst the widow will have property hopefully. So while equality brings its own challenges, I think we can <laughs> prefer to live today. And you're right, actually, again, La Stampa pointed out uh, this question of the maltreatment of women as a strong point of the novel. It's the, the very hard fate of being born a woman and which was accepted without moaning, just getting on with it. So I think for Catherine, it was really, she was at the right time in the right place. And she was of an indomitable spirit. Every possible card in the world was stacked against her. Yet she rose to the most unimaginable height of history. And not only her psychological strength is impressive, but her physical condition too. So she bore the Tsar 13 children, only to see most of them die. She traveled with him all over Russia and Central Asia and Europe and accompanied him into the field. And even though she accepts his straying and his affairs, their relationship is also very modern. So Peter and Great and her were lovers, but above all, they're great friends. He admires her courage, her practical jokes, her level-headedness. He also appreciated that she was so moderate in nature, often uh, softening the blows of his anger. 
when we look at her portraits today, people might struggle to see her appeal. So that's a very modern message too. You can make it happen without adhering to a beauty ideal. And if a contemporary wrote, she wasn't beautiful, but as warm as an animal, he certainly speaks of her sex appeal, which brought her where she was, but above all, about her spirit. Your book is uh, full of these really rich and amazing characters. And I, I, having looked a bit into the history, I think it's, uh, it's a period that's awash with these sort of outrageous, larger-than-life characters. I particularly enjoyed um, Menshikov, Peter the Great's uh, friend and an ally, and later becomes uh, Catherine slash Martyr's um, ally. Who were your favourite characters to, sort of, that you brought into the book? My answer is slightly boring, and as expected, is Peter the Great, hands down. I think the hardest thing, as I said, was to prevent him hijacking the novel, because he looms impossibly large, soaking all and everything he sees and learns up like a sponge, and then squeezing that knowledge out over Russia, redrowning his country in a flood of ideas. And he turned that semi-Asian Muscovy into the semi-European Russia, and is a simply fantastic character interested in everything, callously cruel, with utter disregard to anything or anyone who doesn't match his ideas. If you think what he did to his first wife, it's just horrid. Uh, always ready to pay the highest possible price himself for the fulfillment of his wishes. I mean, he would have given his life any day for Russia's greatness and furthering his nation. And this voracious appetite for all things sensual, you know, be it food or love and I love his confidence in his faith and his destiny and the trust with which he pursued his dreams. He wanted to conquer the Baltics. He wanted to make that earth forever his by building a new city, stomping it out of the earth, conjuring it up from muddy swamps. But he's mesmerizing and he's shocking. He's as multi-layered um, as any human can be, of course, deeply disturbed to ever since witnessing the brutal execution of half his family at the age of nine, ever since he suffered suffered from epilepsy, and perhaps never quite trusted the sun to rise the next day. So I wonder, actually, you mentioned Menshikov, and I wonder if it's for that that Peter the Great so loved turning the world upside down, and possibly his second wife, Catherine the First, my former serf, and Washamay, the heroine of Tsarina, and his best friend Menshikov, who was a former pie baker, are perhaps both the utmost expression of that desire to turn the world upside down and to fool them all, saying, look, I have a former serf and maid as my empress and the richest man in Russia is a former pie baker. Had he wished for Catherine to rule? I mean, he did marry her after 10 years and he did crown her after 20 years of union. And we don't know what he ultimately envisioned for his country because the decision was taken off his hand. I mean, I agree. Peter the Great is is an unbelievable character. I mean, you say he towers over Russian history. I mean, he literally did. He was something like he was nearly seven foot tall, I think. And he obviously has this enormous drive, this enormous drive to westernize Russia. But at the same time, I, you, I can only imagine him in a country like Russia, the way that he had the single-minded determination, his actions, the way that he sort of forced a country to westernize at unbelievable speed. But also his desires, the way that he treats uh, the other women in his life, the way that he treats his son, I can't imagine happening in a country like France, a country like Germany, a country like England. 
the only character I can think I actually could think of that was in any way similar to him is uh, James the Sixth of Scotland, who became James the First of England, because he too sort of grew up in this incredibly, incredibly violent court, the court of um, sort of during Reformation era Scotland. Uh, he saw. Uh, he, his, he saw his uh, mother imprisoned and executed in England. He was made king of Scots, but then uh, all the magnates around him sort of fought for control. And he uh, he too had a, a life afterwards that's forever dominated by this sort of fear, this fear that everything could be taken away. Uh, and having this sort of control freak and freakery, you can sort of see that with his persecution of, of witches because he has this incredible fear. But and even even he has nothing like the the richness that Peter the Great has. He's 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 an unbelievable character, and I would strongly encourage any listeners who don't know much about him to read anything. I mean, obviously, obviously, you should read Tsarina, but any kind of uh, well known biography of him is is a well worth a read. So obviously we're um, in the middle of a coronavirus pandemic here. We were, we had I we initially made plans to to meet up in person to discuss this book, but obviously we're having to now do it from our from our sealed homes. Uh, what's it been like having to launch a book in, in these conditions? Yeah, that's really that's a brilliant question and true. We're looking forward to our coffee in the sun to record this podcast, but it has to happen later. So now we're in um, splendid isolation and. There are really many methods to madness. And in the beginning, I was deeply, deeply worried when I heard that publication would go ahead. Um, end of March, that was when basically, or mid-March, when the lockdown started. I had signed the contract um, with Bloomsbury, my publisher, and with the manuscript finished uh, two years ago. And now this happens. Um, and I really feared that my beautiful, beloved Serena would fall victim to COVID-19. But no, on the contrary, actually. If people want to read anything now, it is this sort of story. I'm, I'm, I'm astonished to discover. So the echo on the book has so far been nothing short of stupendous with all big national newspaper papers reviewing it, as well as TV stations, magazines, and of course, podcasts. So thank you and everybody who is as interested in Catherine the first as I was when I first, um, discovered her. And I promise that no one who reads this book will remain untouched because I always try to do my best and perhaps now in under these circumstances even more so and the now published version of Serena is probably the 30th version of the manuscript you could compare the novel's early draft to the first Mercedes-Benz of 1886 (laughs) I've talked to the road like as a pile of screws and metal and the final version published today is a Bugatti Chiron. So the responsibility to do my best extends far beyond my agent, my editor or my publisher. It's the person I owe most to today more than ever is the reader because not only they pay good money for my book but crucially they give me something so much more valuable and that's their time which is today an ever-diminishing resource. Yeah, I, I sort of thought when we went into into lockdown, I thought this is great. I mean, I'm going to have a lot more time to be able to work on the podcast, to have uh, time to, uh, to to pursue other hobbies, um, because I don't have to spend an hour or two hours a day commuting to and from work. But actually, it doesn't work like that. Things, things sort of emerge to fill the time. And I've sort of had to make sure I... Uh, 
carve out enough reading time, nothing else to, to finish your book because it's uh, it's a it's a book of, of good length. It's around five hundred pages long, and it's it's a it's a enjoyable read. It's a rich read. Uh, it doesn't take too long because it's, it's in no way dodgy. It's really fast paced, but at the same time, you do have to to find to carve out time. And I think this lockdown has been an opportunity to really reflect on what's important. And I think reading is incredibly important at, at this time as, as, as much as any. And, and I'm really pleased that um, you're still getting the attention because this book really does deserve attention. It's fantastic. Obviously, it's a book about Russian history and uh, you are yourself uh, not Russian, although you have sort of said that you have some, some ability in speaking Russian. What feedback do you think or what reception do you think you'll be receiving from Russian readers or sort of Russian-based people in, in Britain or the, or the States? Yes, I hope that above them saying this was really perfect escapism and like Game of Thrones without the dragons or that it should come with a health warning because it's so addictive as various sort of um, reviewers and blurbers have said. I hope that they will see that even though I'm not Russian, and the closest I get to that is the fact that my father grew up in the DDR, but fled in 1956, age 17, through a night forest into West Germany, um, is that the book is written with huge sympathy and understanding for the country and the people. It's full of admiration for their strength and patience and their endurance of imponderable strictures, which apparently is a national heritage from the days of Tatar oppression. Even though I'm not an historian and I hold a master in, in the equivalent of PPE from a French grand école, the research for the book and my fascination for the Slavic soul entitled me to write about Catherine I, about Tsarina, as well as the other novels I'm planning because the sequel has been penned and now I'm looking at a prequel. So for me, Tsarina is a piece of diplomacy an attempt to make millions of people see, hopefully millions of people, <laughs> see the wonders of the Russian soul and the miracles of Russian history. And hopefully they'll be as proud of it and love it as much as I did finding out everything about Catherine the Fat. Well, I'm very pleased to hear there's going to be a sequel. That's going to be my next question. So is it's written... Do you have a, a publication date for, for it and what's it going to be about? Um, yes, so there is a sequel because researching Marta's story um, has led me deeper into all aspects of her world, which I'm now unable to leave. And people say that every artist, as much as they might you know, stray and waver, has got one central theme and one central aspect to their creation. And I think for me... That is definitely the early Romanov Russian world. I've just finished writing a Serena sequel, which I love doing. It's again about a, a Romanov woman. And it's again the very first novel about that lady, which I like. So I was lucky again. There is just too much on Catherine the Great. She was an amazing empress, but she equally had an amazing starting point. She came in as a German princess. Um, so the Serena sequel is again a very modern book about my young heroine fighting to do things her admittedly very, very hard way. And if you think there was maltreatment of women in Serena, hold yourself for the sequel and how she deals with it. At the same time, the task of writing the follow-up was daunting because proving not to be a one-trick pony 
can actually be harder than doing the first trick at all. Um, so next up will be a prequel, fingers crossed, and I'll never retire. I'll never stop writing, but I think I'll die falling face first on my keyboard. And reading and writing makes the world a better place. And we see that in, in days like this, as we say, when we just need escapism and we have to carve out that time to make it happen. And who does not know the sadness when a great novel comes to an end and you have to take leave from its world and, and, and characters. And I love listening to people's stories and weaving them into a larger tableau. I hear so many things that make me go all fidgety with yearning to write. And, and in my study, there are piles of folders with articles I have torn from newspapers or notes I made for possible storylines so many books to write and so little time. My paternal grandmother, whom I never met, um, was also a published author, unusual for her day, before she married and had six children, uh, which channeled all her energy into family life afterwards, as it was in those days. So again, and here we come full circle, I say, what a joy to be a woman today in this much more open, equal and accepting world and with in a time in which we can take a new take looking at history. Fantastic. Now, you've, you've already mentioned the book's been out in Italy for a few months. Uh, where can my uh, listeners who are based all over the world, where can they get their hands on this book? So um, the UK and Commonwealth will publish Serena on the 14th of May. It is out with Bloomsbury, but it's ready for pre-order. I would recommend the Bloomsbury website or preferably Waterstones, who's been fantastically um, welcoming and supportive. And of course, I just hope that all the good local independent bookshops will open soon again. And basically, you will be able to get Serena everywhere in a good shop near to you. And for, for my American listeners, where can they get it? Um, Serena will be published on the 13th of October in New York. And the first print run by... Uh, St. Martin's Press is going to be an astonishing 100,000 copies, which, as the U.S. Library Service calls it, speaks for in-house confidence. So I can only hope that that confidence is rewarded. And there again, I would recommend um, the St. Martin's Press website or, of course, Amazon.com. Well, I hope the, uh, my American listeners all can uh, be able to live with the expectation. And uh, I'm sorry you're having to wait a little bit longer, but I'm sure it will uh, be worth the wait. Well, thank you very much for, for speaking to me today. Uh, I, as I say, I really enjoyed reading the book and I would encourage all listeners to pick it up. It's fantastic. Thank you very much, Alan. Well, thank you, James. And thank you, everybody listening and taking an interest in Zarina. It's been an honour to be invited. I hope that you enjoyed this chat episode. Again, you can find links to pre-order the book in the show notes, but of course you can do so via your local bookshops as well. Next week, we'll be back to our regularly scheduled programming with the final part of our series on Missy of Edinburgh. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. 
But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.